So now, Lord, we ask that you would send forth your word, um, that even as we study your holy word, your scripture, that you would reveal to us um, in ever greater depth um, the, the person of Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, the eternal word. Uh, let him be present in our midst. We welcome you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would use this time right now to accomplish your purposes in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, any questions from last week? Last week I did a one-off Bible study on um, Jesus as the light of the world, which is the first verse we're looking at today from chapter 8, verse um, verse 12. Last week we had it. I know, it was in the adventure, and I tried, because I've been gone, you know, so I was in Nicaragua, I was um, in Kansas City, and then also we had the spring coffee, so it has, I haven't really been here since early March, right, um, but we did have, last week we did, um, we looked at, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't miss anything, we, well, we didn't move, (laughs) well, you did, but not, we didn't miss for we didn't go further along in John chapter eight, but we t- I paused right there with John chapter eight verse twelve, where Jesus says, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." And I looked at Jesus as the light of the world, holding on to that, and then looking into the Synoptic Gospels and their account of Jesus' death and crucifixion, because it was Good Friday when we met last week, looking at those three hours of darkness when Jesus was hanging on the cross just before his death. What, did, what, what does that mean? No one seems to understand. You don't have, with, sometimes within the Bible, you'll have but scripture writers interpreting other parts of scripture. I find that always helpful to say, oh, that's what you mean? Great. But there isn't any interpretation of that. We're not really sure what it means. So I took a stab at it last week. Any questions about last week or thoughts about that that you've reflected on over the course of the week that you'd like to share? Okay. We'll continue in chapter 8. If you recall, before that, before Holy Week, the last time I was here, we looked at that passage that is um, bracketed off in my Bible, probably is in your Bible as well, that starts in John chapter 7, verse 53. Although my Bible groups verse 53 right down at the very beginning of chapter 8. So it looks almost like it's part of chapter 8. And then it goes all the way through 8, verse 11. And that one, remember, we talked about that being scripture, but not probably being an original part of the Gospel of John that's inserted there. So really, when we talk about where we are in the midst of chapter 7 and 8, we're really picking up at the end of chapter 7, verse 52. And does anybody remember, we've been looking primarily at chapter 7 during the course of this semester. Um, We started out, remember, in chapter 6, Remember where Jesus was? Jesus was up in Galilee. I'm giving, we're looking at the big picture before we zoom into chapter 8, where we are in chapter 8. Remember, Deborah Layton's theory of biblical interpretation is essentially that it's like a camera. You zoom, you want to zoom out and get a sense for the big picture. So you get the wider landscape. You get that big horizon. And then you can zoom in. And the little details make more sense in the light of the big picture. So right now, in the big picture, where we are, well, this is actually mid-picture. Where are we? 
Um, Jesus had been in Galilee in chapter 6. And remember, in chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. And then there is a long discourse. Throughout John, there are these long theological discourses that you don't find in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus is just explaining his teaching. He's teaching, he's reiterating what he has taught, and he is some explaining, but it's also sometimes very cryptic, some of the things he's saying. And then there's a response from the crowd. And we saw that all throughout chapter 6, right? That they were, um, they were following him. They were wanting to find out more about this food that he had given them, this free food. They wanted more free food. He was trying to point them to the spiritual reality that he is, in fact, the bread of life and that um, spiritual nourishment comes through Jesus. So that was chapter 6, and that was all in Galilee, in northern Israel, right? In the northern part of Israel, in the hills where Jesus was from, where his family was from, even though he was born in Bethlehem. So then, what happens at the beginning of chapter 7? Does anybody remember and want to tell, want to tell the rest of us? Come on, yes. Anybody, this is not... Yeah, he stayed away from Jerusalem. And remember why they were trying to kill, the, kill him? It was, when did we last see him in Jerusalem? Yes, that was the, you're right. That was the beginning of his last time in Jerusalem was in chapter 2. He turned the tables. He was, well, he was there. Then he went to Samaria. He was headed north. Then somehow he got back there because Nicodemus is talking to him in chapter 3. Oh, no, that was four. Chapter three, he's still there. Chapter four, he heads north. But then he's back in Jerusalem in chapter five. So we don't really know. It's probably two separate visits. But chapter five finds him back in Jerusalem. And remember, he healed someone on the Sabbath. And at the end of chapter five, do you remember what it says? If you're in chapter eight, just hold, keep your place. And if you flip back a few pages, you'll see at the end of chapter five, um, Verse 18, does anyone want to read 18? There you have it. He had healed a man on the Sabbath, and the people, the religious authorities were not happy about it and so they were seeking to when it remember when it says the Jews in John it's not talking about the ethnicity we think of the Jews as the whole Jewish people as an ethnic group that's not what John is talking about in John remember this is before the term Jews was even coined in the Greek this is yeah um, let me see if I can even say it Yaudiai. Udi, Udi. It's the people from Judah. It's um, and John uses it rhetorically to speak specifically of that group that rejects Jesus, that is a part of the um, the authorities, the ruling powers um, for the people of Israel at that time. So again, we're not. It's not all Jewish people here. We're looking just at those um, Jews in Jerusalem who are rejecting Jesus persistently. And here they are, they're rejecting what he's done, they'll go on to reject his teaching, and they have the power to arrest him. And we'll see throughout the rest of John that it's just a question of when, <sighs> almost. And you see that this question of, well, it, John shows us how often they're trying to get Jesus 
trying to arrest him, even trying to kill him, as it says in verse 18. It's very sobering. But one of the things that I think John is doing by showing us this is that um, showing us that, okay, yes, they're trying to kill Jesus, but in fact, um, Jesus does not actually die until it's the right time because God is in charge. Can you imagine in the first century, um, those first believers in Jesus, um, what must they have thought after Jesus' death? Even if they believed in the resurrection, what must they have thought? They must have thought, uh, where is God? That's what we ask anyway when we're suffering or when our hopes and dreams have died. Where is God? Is God really in control of this situation? And John is saying, oh yes, God is in control. Yes, Jesus died, but they were trying to kill him all along. It's a miracle he didn't die sooner. And in fact, the reason why he didn't die sooner, well, first of all, it was God's will because it was the means for um, securing our forgiveness, uh, that it was purposeful and intentional on Jesus' part, on the Father's part. And it didn't happen until the right time in God's timing. It didn't just happen by accident. The cross was no accident. So um, we'll see this idea. We saw this idea of people trying to kill Jesus in chapter 7. We're going to see it again in chapter 8. Do you remember where it was in chapter 7? What happens at the beginning of chapter 7? I'm just asking, I'm asking people who've been here. If you haven't been here, don't, don't answer, because it's not fair. <laughs> and for me to be asking you this, it's sort of like, quick. That's right. Ooh, look at you. Feast of the, well, Feast of Tabernacles, and um, Jesus is going to go down, or his brothers, remember at the beginning, up in, up in Galilee, his brothers, his biological brothers are saying, they don't even believe in him, right? And they're kind of taunting him, teasing him like brothers probably would, saying, well, if you're really the Messiah, go down and show yourself. Don't hide up here in Galilee. Go to the, pub, to the feast and let people know who you are in this big public forum. Go live. Go on TV. <laughs> Broadcast it big so everybody will know. Um, um, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. That's verse 3. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus seems to say, no, I'm not going to go. But really what he's saying is, I'm not going to go on your timeline, guys. And I'm not going to go with you in public. And he goes down to the feast in secret. And then he starts to teach. And we see a lot of teaching in chapter 7. Remember all that teaching? In my Bible, I have a red letter Bible. And so I, get, I love it because I can just look and see. So this is the beginning of 7. Here's all the teaching in red. And you can see it's back and forth. Red, black, red, black. Teaching response. Teaching response. Jesus saying something and people responding to what he's saying. Either favorably or negatively. But do you remember what is... There are so many different themes in Jesus' teaching. Does anybody remember the, one of the themes during chapter 7? Now I'm really asking you hard questions. Sorry. What, 
One of the themes, I'll give you a clue, has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles itself. Jesus is playing on the Feast of Tabernacles because that is the setting for this teaching. He, the whole reason he went down to Jerusalem was to celebrate this feast with the other Jews. This was one of those major feasts of the year where Jews from all around the Mediterranean basin would travel on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship there together in the temple. And does anybody remember what the Feast of Tabernacles was remembering and celebrating? There you go, a study Bible. The desert wind. <laughs> it's good. Thank you. The desert wanderings. Do you remember what the desert wanderings, what does that refer to? 40 years in the wilderness. And the feast, of the, the whole name, tabernacles, gives us an idea. Because basically, tabernacles are like tents. It's like the feast of tents. Remember those 40 years when we didn't have a real house and we had to live in a tent? Can't imagine living in a tent for 40 years. I can't live in a tent for a weekend, but they live in tents still, but yes, yes, some do. But I, and I, that's the question. Certainly, Abraham and his, you know, and his offspring lived in tents. Yeah, but these, in some way, the retrospectively, once they'd entered the promised land, it was like now you don't have to live in tents anymore, and they didn't from that point on once they had entered the promised land. So in some ways, by celebrating this feast, they're remembering it. Remember that? Remember when we used to live in tents and God brought us out of the wilderness and God was faithful to us? And not only that, but when we were in the wilderness, in the desert, he provided water for us. He provided manna. What else? Water, manna, quail, clothes. Yeah, so he provided all the basic necessities. Our clothes didn't wear out, our sandals didn't get holes in them, or maybe it's the other way around. Sandals didn't wear out, clothes didn't get holes in them. God provided them water, water from the rock. Remember, they were thirsty and Moses struck the rock. God told him to strike the rock with his staff. And out of the rock flowed running water, streams of running water. Does that sound familiar with what Jesus was teaching in chapter 7? Yeah, verse 30, do you have it? Does anybody have verse 37 through 39 in chapter 7? Right. And remember that living water is water that's running. It's a shower, not a bath. Bath is just sort of like a pond and you sit in it. Shower, the water flows and impurity is taken away with it. And throughout scripture, living water is water that cleanses, that has life in it, that brings new life that doesn't stagnate like a pond, like that scuzzy pond um, that I've gone to for my whole life. I used this illustration a few weeks ago of the pond, you know, in this place where I go to visit on Cape Cod with my grandparents. Where's Sarah? And you walk into the, you walk, you walk down this path and the path ends and um, the trees part and you see this big pond and in July it is just green. The whole pond is green makes you think you could walk on it, but you really can't. And you really wouldn't want to because who knows what's living in that pond. It is so scummy. But because there is no inlet and outlet to the pond, there's no water feeding the pond, 
that stirs it up and so it becomes this greenhouse for all sorts of living things, all sorts of organisms. Well, living water flushes it out. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 37 and 39, through 39, this is the culmination of his teaching in this chapter. Really climaxes right at this point where he's saying, come to me, come to Jesus, who is that true rock, as the Apostle Paul says, the true rock that followed the Israelites in the desert, out of whom the living waters will flow. Um, and he has said that to the woman at the well in chapter 4, that he is the source of living water. Um, that um, the water that he would give her would cause her to never thirst again. She says, give me this water always. He goes, okay, we, we can work that out. But um, So Jesus is the source of this living water. And for those who believe in him, well, first of all, he slakes our human thirst. Um, our need for um, whatever it might be, any, all of our needs are fulfilled in him. Um, he is the solution to all of our problems. All of our hopes are fulfilled in him. And, um, and even that human need to worship, to put something on a pedestal, all of that only can be truly met in him. He is the true bread that feeds our souls, just like he is also here, the true water, that living water that um, quenches our thirst. And then, as we come to Jesus and our thirst is quenched, out of our own hearts, out of our own bellies, it's almost like bellies in this verse, not out of our minds, but out of our, the very depths of our being, comes um, the Holy Spirit as well. That as we put our trust in um, Jesus, we are, then, um, we are then baptized also in his Holy Spirit, in God's Holy Spirit, and we also can become um, a, a means uh, for life and hope for other people around us. That we can be, you know, the little stream by which they traverse to the big stream, which is Jesus. The means by which um, we can point to, Je- we can also then point to Jesus as well. Um, I don't know if that made any sense. Any questions about that? About the teaching in chapter seven? Um, If you were to go home and read chapter 7 again, you would see a couple of other things that pop up. The hour of Jesus' death we already talked about. Remember, it's God's timing. But whenever Jesus talks about the time or the hour, he's talking about his death, which he knows is coming up. He is looking um, toward that day, knowing he knows what he will do. He knows the cost of the love that he has for the people of the world. Um, Jesus is consistently shown as having authority, a kind of authority that the crowd has never seen before or never experienced before in other teachers. And they respond to that. They marvel at that. They marvel at that and they mention it in chapter 7. We're going to find that they do the same thing in chapter 8 as well. Um, Another theme that you see is Jesus' origin and identity. Who, Who is this man and where did he come from? And how does where he come from, what does um, his origin tell us about his identity? They ask all these questions in chapter 7. We're going to see they're going to ask them in chapter 8 too. Which is all to say that chapter 8 is really what we're seeing here. It's the extension of the same scene. If this were a play, it would all be happening 
all on one stage. You know, there would be no scene changes in between, even though we had that interlude with the woman caught in adultery. The, all of this teaching and the interaction between Jesus and the crowd in the temple at the feast all happens between chapter 7 and chapter 8. So that kind of sets the stage for us as we pick up today with verse 12 in chapter 8. Any questions about that before we begin? Haha, <laughs> before we begin. Halfway through. I know the sun is coming out. Hope springs eternal. Yes. Um, does someone want to start and read a few verses beginning at chapter uh, 8, verse 12, and we'll go through verse 30? Well, Again, yeah, good. Thank you, Trudy. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I have come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Someone else want to pick up and read a couple of verses? It's so hard to focus, I know, with them. We'll just try to tune them out. <coughs> you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone that judge, but I am he who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of the two men is true. said to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Sure, go for, go for a couple more. <clears throat> I told you that you would die in your sins, or you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Even what I have said and what I have told you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge. <clears throat> but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Someone else want to pick up? They did not understand that he spoke to them with the Father. And Jesus said to them, You lift up the sins of men, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing to myself, but as my Father taught me, and speak things to me. And he who sent them is with me. The Father has not left me alone. 
for all those be those things that please him. As he spoke these words, we believe in him. That's a lot of material, isn't it? Again, I'll show you my red letter Bible. It's a lot of red, right? And there's some black back and forth where they're asking him questions. But it's a lot of red. Jesus, and what's interesting about it is that it's not like John chapter 6, which do you, I don't know, do you have a red letter Bible too? I, I find it helpful. Look at John, or 5. Look at chapter 5. Look at all that red. It's all red. It's a monologue. He's just giving them all this information. Here he's really responding, and it's a back and forth. They'll ask him a question. They'll ask for him to clarify, and he does. But one of the things I will say, you know, to get that big picture sense for what is going on here. Well, what what is it? What is going on with this crowd as they're asking him questions? And why is Jesus engaging him in them in the way that he is? What is going on? Well, I... Um, I haven't read this in any commentators, so if you don't think it's right, you can just say, no, Deborah, nobody else thinks that either. But um, throughout John, you'll see that there is, whenever Jesus is interacting with other people, he is challenging them and beckoning them and pushing them to come to a place where they decide, make a decision about Jesus, where they um, step out either in faith or that they clarify, you know, he is that sword, as the word of God, that is dividing bone from marrow. He's saying, driving to a decision, saying, do you believe in me or do you not believe in me? And you see this, you know, if you started out in John, you would see this. You see this when he um, interacts with the disciples in chapter 1 and chapter 2. You see this when he um, encounters Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he's, you know, basically getting, pressing Nicodemus to decide, pressing Nicodemus to come to a higher understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus, what believing in Jesus actually entails, and what are the benefits of believing in Jesus. He talks about that being born again, being born in the Spirit, born from above. Um, And then um, he also does the same thing with the woman at the well. The woman at the well he encounters, He talks about that living water that he has. He's trying to get her to incline towards him, to lean in and press in in faith. The same thing could be said with the the gentleman in chapter 5, the man who is paralyzed and healed. Jesus presses him after he encounters him again. Once the man has been healed, he sees him again in the temple. And the man has not been bearing witness to who Jesus is and what he has done for him. And Jesus presses him. There you get the sense that maybe this man is not inclining, but rather declining, moving away from Jesus. Um, And then again here with 7 and 8, I really do think you see Jesus pressing this crowd in Jerusalem, this this crowd of pilgrims and saying, no, really, I, I have all that you need spiritually. Come to me. Come and believe in me. And um, that he's getting some pushback from them. They're resistant. And so what we'll see at the end of it is that they eventually do decide. Some believe in him, and it says alongside. So I sort of imagine this crowd where there are these um, people disbelieving who are vocal. But people, you know how when someone's really vocal about their opinion and you sort of disagree but you'd rather not engage them on it and you just okay well 
well, I won't say anything, but no way. Um, <laughs> I, I do that a lot, unfortunately. But I just think, you know what, I'm not, it's not worth it to take that one on. I'm just going just gonna to bide my time. And <laughs> Yes. I think there are people in the crowd, because remember, who are doing that. At the end, at verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. But when we go on into the next few verses, which we'll do next week, um, those it appears as though some in the crowd start really um, opposing Jesus, and and that the whole chapter ends in an attempt to stone Jesus. So most of the crowd is, or the vocal part of the crowd is against Jesus, but we know that some people are believing in him based on what he's saying. So my suggestion to you is that each of those little red letter sections in my Bible where Jesus is teaching, I think what he's doing is he is trying all of these different tactics to get this resistant crowd to believe in him in different ways. Um, so then we'll look at these individual things that he says. But keep that in mind, that he is pressing them into faith. He's saying, no, come, come a little closer. There's something, I have something that you need. And then he, oh, and then when that's not working, he says, um, if you reject me, it won't be good. And talks about the negative consequences for rejecting Jesus. Um, and then continues to give them an opportunity and alludes even to his death, that they might not get it until his death, some of them. So for any questions about that in general, did you hear some of that when we read it aloud just now? Okay. Last week we talked about Jesus as the light of the world. Um, and that verse that he says at the very beginning, this is one of those positive things he is saying, and he's saying, come, come to me. Come to Jesus. He is the light of the world. Throughout scripture, light and dark are both under God's control. You see this even in the beginning in Genesis. God creates both light and dark, day and night. And yet, he is the one in whom there is no darkness at all. Because there's you know, that darkness associated with wrongdoing, often metaphorically associated with wrongdoing throughout scripture, what that passage is saying is that in God there is no evil. God is all good. It's not like the universe is not like what um, the Eastern religions would say, you know, equal parts yin and yang, you know, that that yin and yang symbol is saying, oh, well, it's half good, half bad, and they're going to duke it out for the rest of all time. The, the Bible is not saying that. The Bible is saying, oh, no, God created the entire universe, and he, he is good, and good will prevail. So the light symbolizes all of that from God. Um, in throughout, So um, there's light at creation, and God is in control of it. Um, God's own being is surrounded in, um, in light. You see this all throughout the visions that the prophets have in the Old Testament of Jesus. And you see it even in Revelation, where the Lamb himself, Jesus, the resurrected and ascended one, he is the light for that new Jerusalem. There's no need for a sun or a moon because he will be the glory in that place. His glory will be enough for us to see by. For us, This is so great to be talking about this as the sun is coming out. Sorry. It's perfect. I couldn't have staged it better myself. Um, but so that idea of God's, God's light is associated with his holiness and in him there is no darkness. Light is also associated with salvation throughout scripture. 
um, because of the way that the light, that pillar of fire, remember in the desert, the Israelites were wandering around. They didn't know where they were going. And God sent a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them so that they wouldn't get lost. Well, they did get lost. They wandered for 40 years and not a very large piece of land, but they wandered. Um, but that was intentional wandering on God's part. And God was leading them and he was there with them. So that pillar of fire is something that they remembered specifically in this Feast of Tabernacles. And they celebrated it again by lighting these giant candles as a part of their feast and their celebration. So that idea of God being a light that guides our paths. I mean, think about that famous psalm, Psalm 119. And I think of the, I think it's an Amy Grant song. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? God's word is a light for our feet um, and a lamp for our path, showing us what way to go. And God himself is light. So Jesus, in John, Jesus is specifically called the light of the world, and he precedes this in the preface in his prologue in chapter 1. John says that Jesus is um, the light of men. Um, and that the um, light has shined in the darkness, the darkness being the, the world, the universe, the fallen universe, um, every all of creation that has um, been affected by that first sin of Adam and Eve and the continuing effects of human sin. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, the darkness is not stronger than the light, is what John is saying. So, um, any questions about that from last week or questions about um, Jesus as a light to the world? That idea of a path and following the light, can you see it in verse 12? Whoever follows Jesus will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How wonderful. And just as a little footnote, we talked a little bit about this last week, or I alluded to it. But Matthew says that you are the light of the world. He says this, Jesus is saying this to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. Remember that? How can Jesus say, I am the light of the world, and then he looks at us and says, you are the light of the world? Well, in the next chapter, in John, you don't need to flip to it, but in John 9, verse 5, Jesus says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he is that light of the world, and he continues to be the, the light. And yet, in his bodily absence, because he has risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's no longer here in a present bodily sense. And so um, then how are we, what, what is, where's the world's hope? Except that um, through the church, which is meant to be a sign to Jesus, an arrow pointing to Jesus, we are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So that's how the people of God, the church, is um, called the light of the world by Jesus himself. Any questions about that? That's very confusing, but. So how does that draw us in? 
to knowing Jesus better, to making a decision about Jesus. I mean, for very many of us, we we each, we may have already made, you know, we probably all have already said yes to Jesus um, at one point in our lives. But I think there's this continual, I think the role of a disciple is to say, continually say yes to Jesus. Um, That each thing, that each time we interact with Jesus, our response is yes. We don't just commit ourselves once to Jesus. And I think of, you know, the good old evangelical sinner's prayer. You know, I was in a Billy Graham crusade. I was, when I was like 14, I was one of those, you know, counselors, go and someone will say the prayer with you. So I got to say the sinner's prayer with lots of other kids. Woohoo! And and it's wonderful. And that is for very many people. That's the starting point. But it's also the continuing point, that continual response to Jesus of yes, 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 you are the light of the world. Yes, there is light in following you. No, my path isn't dark, even though um, dark things have happened to me or I've done dark things. Um, yes, you are still m- the light that I follow. And you're not just um, the light in terms of um, showing me the way and um, showing me how to live, but you're my only hope. I think of light in terms of hope and just even just this spring. It used to be so much worse for me up north with real, excuse me, real winters. <laughs> Did I say that? And it's, I think it's even, a, well, I mean, you know, snow and sub-zero temperatures makes for a different kind of winter than rain and 30 degree temperatures. But even so, I've already adjusted so that, I don't know about you, but when it was in the 70s last week, I was, I was it affects my mood so much. I have hope now for summer. And then this week, I don't know about you, but the cold and the dreariness has been like, it was like one step forward, two steps back. And I think, well, when is, when is it coming? But isn't it amazing how even just the light, the changing seasons and the gr- more light that we have as it gets to be spring just inspires hope in us. Spring is that time when we, we think all things are possible. Well, Jesus is this perpetual spring because all things are possible in him. That um, there is real true hope in him because of what God has done for us through him. Um, any thoughts on that before we look at some of the other things that Jesus is saying? You'll probably get whiplash because I'm going to go pretty quickly through them. So just stop me and say, Deborah, you're not making any sense. Um, so Jesus is saying, come, come a little closer. I'm the light of the world. Then he starts getting a little bit, they're, they're challenging him. They don't like what he said. And they said, well, how do we know that you're true? what you're saying is true? And um, they say in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In the law, in the Hebrew, in the Mosaic law, you needed two witnesses in court to testify about something. And one of those witnesses could not be the person on trial. They are putting Jesus on trial to test and see if his, if his testimony, if what he's saying is true. And Jesus is not about to be put on trial. I mean, Jesus is the eternal word, uncreated, God himself. And here these fallen human beings are, um, are saying, no, you, you need to prove yourself to us. And isn't that what we do as human beings? I'm sure you know someone in your life who is really resistant to Jesus. And they probably say, oh, prove it to me. 
in that tone of disbelief. Prove it to me. Well, this is exactly what they're saying. Prove it to us. Really? You're the light of the world? Prove it to us. And Jesus is saying, well, I don't need to. He's saying that his two witnesses, he himself is a witness. Um, my testimony is true. Well, he, he says his, he's, a, he's a valid witness because he knows his own origin and his destiny. I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. There's that theme again of Jesus' origin and his destiny. destiny. Um, in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Well, Jesus is the judge of the world. We know this, that when he returns on judgment day, he will judge the world. People will be held accountable. We will be held accountable for our actions. Well, Jesus is talking here about his earthly life. He's talking here about his ministry and his earthly life when he was not coming to judge, but rather to save. So he's saying, I, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Um, and then he talks about the law where the two testimonies are necessary, two witnesses. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Those are his two witnesses. Well, um, there's that idea there also of Jesus being the sent one. Remember we talked about this a little bit before, that Jesus is like this apostle from God. That that being the sent one, that verb in the Greek is literally the verb that we get apostle from. So those 12 apostles are once sent out from Jesus who had borne witness to Jesus, who'd been with him, who knew more about him than anyone else. And Jesus is saying the same thing about his relationship with the Father, that he was sent out from the Father, that he has spent so much time with the Father, and that no one knows the Father better than he does. And so there's that identity of Jesus as the sent one, and he will repeat that even more in what he says later on. But this idea of trial and witnesses sounds like law and order or something. That's about all I I don't think we have any lawyers today. Where's Shannon? Well, I mean, we, in, we have so many lawyers in our church, too. And here, this law and this trial motif is found all throughout John. It's so funny. If you were to go back and you were to look at John chapter 5, verse 31, you'll see G Jesus talking about this trial idea there as well. And the question is, well, what, what is John doing? What's going on with this trial motif? Well... It's kind of a catch-22 and a mystery that the, um, and I'm doing this with my arms because it's the only way I can show you, I don't know, it's not a very good illustration and it's kind of, um, it won't carry over on the tape, but they are judging Jesus and saying, putting Jesus on trial and saying, Jesus, you need to show us and prove to us that you are who you say you are and that we should actually listen to you because otherwise we're not going to. Show us and we'll make a decision about you, whether to reject you or to um, believe you. And Jesus is saying, yes, you, you should make a decision about me, but you should also know that your decision, when you make your decision about me, you will be judged by the true judge based on your decision about Jesus. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That even as they judge Jesus, they are then being judged that even as we judge Jesus and make up our minds about Jesus, we are then being judged. Because on that last day, when Jesus, the judge, does return, 
and we are judged based on our deeds in this life, those who believe in him will look to him and say, I have not been righteous. I have not been faithful. I have sinned, and I look to you in faith to save me. We will each be judged, and yet for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have all fallen short. We would all fail in that judgment, except that as we look to Jesus in faith, we are essentially saying, Jesus, let your clean record stand for my tarnished one. Let your um, holiness stand for me. And that is, in fact, what happens, that as we hide ourselves in the mercy of the judge himself and in the actions of the judge himself on our behalf, in his death, we are then, um, we are then spared from the condemnation that would justly be ours. As we make a decision about Jesus to love him, to serve him, to follow him, to believe in him above all else, we are then, um, yes, being judged, and yet, because we have put our faith in him, we're spared from that judgment. Is that totally confusing? Yeah. But so you see how it's um, this decision-making that then decides um, our own fate. They think that they're in control, but they are, in fact, not in control. Um, so um, this Jesus goes on, and he's trying. I do think that each time he engages with them, he is pressing them. He's graciously trying to get them to a place where they could believe in him. He's challenging some of their ideas. They're trying to say, well, where is your father? As if Jesus was not talking so explicitly about God. Jesus says, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He's saying, come to me so that you would really know God. I am the only way you can know God. I'm the best way you can know God. Um, and and then, um, again, he, he's tr- throwing out something else, I think, in, tr- in verse 21. I'm going away. He's already said he's going away. But if he goes away, doesn't that suggest that they need to make a decision now? He's pressing them, saying, this option will not be always open. Decide now. Decide to believe in Jesus now. I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And they get hung up on the details. They don't sense his urgency and say, well, I guess we better decide for or against him now. We better believe in him now. They're saying instead, what's he talking about? Where is he going to go? And they're trying to figure out where he's going to go. Will he kill himself since he says where I'm going? You cannot come. He's saying, no, you're not getting it. I am from below. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I do think this is gracious of him. I've told you, I told you that you would die in your sins. So clear right here. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Wow, they're getting loud over there. If I had to, if I had to characterize this, you know, as a director and with my film and theater background, I always think not just of the content of what is being said, but how it's being said. Does it sound to you the way it sounds to me that Jesus might just be pleading them? pleading them saying don't die in your sin believe in me instead come on now's the time believe in me um he goes on they say who are you just what i've been telling you from the beginning i have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true and i declare to the world what i have heard from him 
He is the one who reveals the Father. They still don't understand. And then Jesus says in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. When Jesus is lifted up, that's the moment of his death. Um, And that's the moment of faith for us as well. That's how we trust in him. Um, And he's hoping, he's hoping and saying, maybe when they see um, how much I love them, what I would be willing to do even for them, maybe then they'll believe. Any thoughts about that? Any questions? Any confusion, any um, pushback on those ideas, that big picture that Jesus is pressing for belief on the, on, um, from the crowd. And, um, and we'll see where it goes in the in next week. We'll see what happens, um, whether or not they believe in him or not. But even as Jesus is talking to them, the word is also for us as well. He's talking to us directly and inviting us into, not just into a a relationship with him, but even deeper in a relationship with him. You think they are? I think that's yeah. I do. I, I don't know. I just feel. Yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking about myself. Yeah. I would. Yes. And I think about that a lot. Yes. There's several years having been in a different Bible study. Can you imagine? Like you said, can you imagine being those first people who? Mm-hmm. Followed him, and then those that were trying, I mean, it's like, okay, I mean, it's a push. It really is a push. Well, it's a stretch to believe for them. Yeah. Certainly a stretch to believe that, um, not entirely a stretch to believe that God is triune. They had this preparation in, um, in the Old Testament. When you look at wisdom and the word of God being a wisdom of God, and um, as the, as the, wisdom literature developed and as they really thought about it and over over the centuries they thought it's almost like god's wisdom is like this separate entity that god's word and that's like this passage from isaiah that god's word it's like once it goes out for it's like something else it accomplishes it's got its own identity the word of god and so there was in some ways i mean i and it's maybe reading the whole bible through a trinitarian lens um, but yeah, that's the biggest hurdle, is that, and and I think, and I agree entirely that our job is to have compassion on those who don't believe, to know it's difficult, and to remember for our own selves what it took for us to come to faith in Jesus, um, how hard it is to believe, and that's really where prayer comes into into play, for our own selves and for others, for those we love who don't believe, for ourselves, you know, remember that that cry of that man at the bottom of the mountain when Jesus comes down after the transfiguration in the synoptic gospels he he has this son who hasn't been able to be healed by the disciples and he cries out I believe help my unbelief and I think that is the cry of every Christian I believe help my unbelief that's a prayer that God delights to answer to increase our faith in him and it's also a sign too that Faith in God is not something, yes, Jesus is pressing for a decision, um, but it's also something that is in and of itself a gift from God. 
And so to pray for that on behalf of those that we love, because we know the life and the freedom and the forgiveness that's available to us through Jesus, we know that it's objectively true. We ask the Father that he would send the Holy Spirit to enlighten, to um, remove the blinders, to have that supernatural knowledge about Jesus. I think you're right. I think he does, too. Some of his answers to their questions are very cryptic. You know, they ask him directly, well, where are you from? And he is... Mm-hmm. You know, also, those people, they were expecting the sign. They were? They thought he was yeah, they did. And, and I don't think, I don't believe yet that they understood the Isaiah suffering servant was talking about the Messiah. I think you're right. So, I mean, I think it, it is what she said. It's understandable that those people were confused. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, well, I know that we're looking for a Messiah, but he's most accomplished. Yeah. And I also say, you know, this effort to kill Jesus and this persecution of Jesus, I've said it before and I'll say it again, especially as we get more towards the passion narrative, that that, that impulse and that drive was actually, when you look at the Mosaic Law, when you look at Deuteronomy, if Jesus, it, it, it's C.S. Lewis's statement all over again, either he's, Jesus is who he says he is, or he's insane. And, you know, and so if they believed that he was not who he said he was, because they didn't believe it possible that he could be who he said he was, then he would be a, a prophet who, a false prophet, who is misleading and deceiving the people. And right there in Deuteronomy, it says that you have to, that it is the job of the people of Israel to extinguish, to stamp out and get rid of those prophets before they cause people to... Um, to go into idolatry and to start worshiping a god that's no god. So you could see that, and, and in fact, this is the tragedy of the disbelief, is that um, in, in doing what they believed was right, they're actually killing their only hope and their Messiah. Um, and I think that's how often do we shoot ourselves in our own foot, you know? And it's so tragic, and that's really... I talk about this division and the confusion because it's tragic. It's meant to have us weep on behalf of those who don't believe, on behalf of our own selves, and not to judge or to um, to lambast people who don't believe. It's a tragic thing. Anything else about that? Yes. I think you're absolutely You are absolutely right. And you know we're going to see that. That's both in chapter 5 with the man who's healed at the pool of um, Bethesda, but then it's also in chapter 9 with the man born blind. He doesn't say anything because, the, or his parents don't want him to say anything because they're afraid that they'll get kicked out of church, out of the synagogue. Um, all this to say, though, this is before the Holy Spirit. Even the disciples didn't believe. Remember, the, Jesus keeps telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from, rise from the dead. In one of the Gospels, he tells them at least three times. And they still don't get it. It's because it, the Holy Spirit had not been given. And even the Gospels say, once Jesus is dead and raised, and they have, then the Holy Spirit shows them all these things throughout Scripture. So, 
Um, we've gone way over. I'm sorry. Let's pray. And then if you have any other questions, you can just ask me and everybody else can go home. Um, Lord God, we thank you for your word made flesh for Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that even as we engage with him and engage with your written word, we ask, Lord, that you would draw us nearer to you, even in our own confusion, even in our own um, places of disbelief. We just ask, Lord, incline to us, just like Jesus inclined to those people and tried to um, show them different things about him, tried to press them and challenge them. Lord, bring us um, into deeper faith in you through him. And uh, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to do this, that we would know that it is your work and not our work. And so we say, we believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.